So the plan is for the service to be over by noon next Sunday. And if you don't think I can do that, then I challenge you to be here to see in person, all right? (laughs) Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to the book of Matthew chapter 21. Now, I have to tell you that as we come to this sermon today, this is kind of a pre-sermon statement. Uh, I've been told, I especially thank Betty Ruth Wakefield Haley for making that possible. And we'll be talking more about that as we go forward, but uh, her gifts made that possible and we are grateful. But it presents a problem for me. I've had several of you tell me I need to put some makeup on my head (coughs) because between the lights and those things, and it's going to be hard for you to hear because of what you see. So listen with your eyes closed if you have to. Nobody will think you're asleep or nobody would blame you. So Matthew chapter 21 is where we find ourselves. I had some friends uh, who in the past did a mission trip. Actually, I think they called it a crusade trip uh, to the nation of Brazil. And they went to the capital city of Brasilia while they were there. And one of my friends told about one of the experiences they had on that particular trip. They went out to the edge of town where there was a large dam and a hydroelectric plant that provided electricity for that city and other cities, I'm told. But on the banks of that canyon, just below where that dam was constructed, was a community that had been built. Now, it's a little bit of a stretch to say that there were buildings there because actually what that little community was made of was cardboard lean-tos. And the especially wealthy of those who were not at all wealthy were able to find some piece of tin or something to lay across the top of their cardboard shacks where they lived. Some of the most destitute and the poorest of the poor of that area called that home. And the reason I bring it up today is because my friend began to explain to me the, just the irony of what he saw. Because there on the banks of that canyon, below that dam with the electricity lines, the high voltage electrical, electrical lines that snaked its way away from that little community, snaked its way out to provide electricity for hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people. Those people in those little cardboard lean-to shacks had no electricity, no running water, just destitute. And Bill began to tell me how he couldn't quite grasp that, that how they could live in the shadow of electric lines that could provide them with more power than they could ever use in a lifetime. They just didn't know how. Their lives are wrapped up in the creative power of the universe. God himself who spoke the words and all of the universe came into order. God who maintains order in that universe. Incredible power that he is. And yet we have Christian people populating our churches who don't seem to know how to tap into that power. And so they live lives as one person said, lives of quiet desperation in the shadow of almighty power. Today, as we come to this latest parable that we find Jesus telling, 
I want to take you back, and if you happen to notice on the bulletin cover there, the title of this message is simply, Don't Be Dumb. Now, in case that's a little offensive to you, and I know that it can be a little bit offensive to you. I mean, I've seen the billboards, or as one little kid called them, bullboards that are around town that are promoting a particular fitness place that only a dumbbell would something. Uh, it's a little offensive, and I don't want to be offensive, so let me tell you where I get that statement, don't be dumb. I get it from one of the great saints of Christian history, St. Levi Price. Now, I need to tell you that I call him St. Levi to his face, and so that shouldn't be a problem for you. But one of the great pastors of this great church in yesteryear, I had the great privilege in meeting Levi when, well, I can call him Levi now. At the time, I had to call him Dr. Price because I met him in the context of a classroom. And that final step of my formal education process in one of those little two-week seminar sessions that we had, particularly on pastoral leadership, our school brought in Dr. Price to lead part of that leadership seminar. And I remember vividly Dr. Price as he would talk to us about just the, the bottom shelf stuff of ministry, what it's like ministering in a local church. And I'm sure now that I know him and I know this church, I'm sure that some of the stories that he told us have your names on them, even though he didn't use names. But he talked to us as young pastors, or some of us were not that young, and he talked to us about being a pastor and leading a church. And every once in a while, he would lean across that lectern sitting at that table, and he would just kind of lean in like this, and he would point his finger and say, let me just tell you guys, just don't be dumb. Well, you know, that made an impact on me. And the reason it made an impact on me is because I figured out it's easy to be dumb. And he was trying to lock in on that part of us and that part of ministry where we just kind of park our brains. See, what I figured out since then is you don't really have to try to be dumb. You can just do nothing and turn out to be really dumb before it's all said and done. And Dr. Price was careful to make sure that as pastors and as leaders in a local church that we were engaged, that our mind was engaged in what we were doing, that we didn't do stuff without thinking it through. And so we come to a parable today where I believe that Jesus could have summarized it by using Dr. Price's statement, don't be dumb. So we come to this passage, and we're going to read it in just a few moments but we need to set the scene before we do that because as we, as we come into this parable, now it has several different teaching points and we'll go through those tonight. But for this message today, I want to highlight one of those main teaching points of this particular parable and here it is. True discipleship changes our lives. Another way to say that is true discipleship produces changed people. For us to say that we are disciples of Jesus Christ is to buy into a point of reference, a universal truth of discipleship with Jesus Christ, and that is that as we hook into his life, it changes our lives. And so we we set the scene for this parable as we come into chapter 21 of Matthew's gospel. And you'll notice in chapter 21, the first couple of verses, that it sets up the triumphal entry. This is now the last week of Jesus' life. 
And in this last week, what we find Matthew presenting for us, as the other gospel writers do, is that Jesus and the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, those people who were the religious establishment of Judaism, there is an increasing confrontation with those guys between them and Jesus. And so in the great entry, the triumphal entry, as Jesus comes in preparing for that last week, there is this, it rankles them. It it just messes with their heads a little bit that Jesus is getting this kind of attention. That's the first part of chapter 21. We get to chapter 21, verse 12, and the escalation kicks into high gear as Jesus goes into the temple, and Matthew records the cleansing of the temple that Jesus does there. That sets the, uh, the religious leaders off even more. And so in verses 15, and 16, there is this negative reaction that they have. In chapter 21, verse 19, Jesus very symbolically and full of meaning curses the fig tree, which leaves us then in chapter 23, excuse me, 21 and verse 23, where the disciples, Jesus, are now being directly challenged by those religious leaders. By what authority? Do you do this? In other words, what they're saying to Jesus is this. Who do you think you are, really? Jesus takes that, and he just hits them between the eyes with it. And so by the time we get to 21, verses 28 and following, all the way through chapter 22, verse 14, we have this series of three parables that Jesus tell, each, tells, each one building upon the previous one, each one settling in with this confrontation with those religious leaders. And that brings us to the parable for the day, the parable of the two sons that we begin reading in chapter 21, verse 28, where Jesus says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first, and he said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And that son answered, I will not. (laughs) I'm going to come back to that, but I can't ever read that without thinking I would have died immediately if I'd have said that in my house. And that's kind of the point, what Jesus says, verse 29, and he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. Verse 30, and he went to the other son, the father did, went to the other son and said the same thing. And he answered, I go, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the Father? And they, that is the religious leaders, said, the first. And so Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. That's the first of these three parables. It provides enough for us today, I think, for the time that we have. So let's just settle into it. Really not that hard to understand the parable. It's pretty straightforward. As a matter of fact, it's built, as we saw last week, it's built deeply into the the culture that they had and their perception of how fathers and their children, especially their sons, were to behave with one another. It would have been unthinkable in first century Jewish life for a son to take the demands, the the direction of his father and say to him, I'm not going to do it. It would have been worse for a son to say, I'll do it, but then not do it. 
So Jesus just taps into that part of how they live their lives, the rules, if you will, of their social engagement. And with that, he teaches this basic truth. There is an authority issue at work here. That fits the context of what we have. The religious leaders are questioning Jesus, but who who do you think you are doing these things? And so Jesus comes in, and at one point, John the Baptist enters the conversation. Now, this is in the verses before this. I'm not going to take the time to go read it right now. But John the Baptist gets inserted into this. Jesus says, so who was he? Was he really from God or was he not? And they're smart enough to know that they can't really answer that without hanging themselves. And so they just kind of leave it there. And Jesus says, okay, let's just leave it there. But when he comes to deal with this parable, he inserts John the Baptist into the backside of it. Did you see that? Verse 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. Let me stop right there. You see, here's the authority problem. The authority problem that Jesus injects into their conversation, they're wondering who he thinks he is. He knows who he is. They just don't receive it. And so Jesus goes backwards. He pulls John the Baptist in and essentially says, you didn't believe he was from God and you didn't accept who he was. You don't believe I'm from God and you don't accept who I am either in what I do. You've seen what John did. You've seen what I do, but that's not enough for you. So let's just move on. But there's judgment attached when you reject God's man. That's the essential teaching here. Jesus is answering their question about authority by highlighting the fact that they are the ones who say, I'll go do what you say, God, but then they refuse to accept God's man. It's pretty straightforward. It's fairly simple. And they, that is the prostitutes and the tax collectors, are the ones who repent. They change. They believed enough in the message of John the Baptist it changed their behavior. The same is true of their behavior relative to what Jesus has said and what Jesus has done. So here's where we take all of that. I want to spend the rest of our time now doing some application. The parable itself is pretty straightforward. How do you respond to the authority of God in your life. We go back to the big truth. True discipleship produces changed lives. Here's a little truth I would like for you to hang on to. It's one of those things that you you might write it down somewhere and commit it to memory because it needs to be part of the way you handle your life on a day-to-day basis. Here's the statement. Jesus will always meet you where you are, but he is never going to be content to leave you there. Jesus is always in the business of changing lives, of transforming us. And so for us, as we come into a relationship with him, it is essential that we come and we believe in him, that we understand that he is in fact Messiah, that he is in fact the Son of God, that he in fact was crucified and rose from the dead. We're almost into Easter season, and we're going to celebrate that truth. All of those things are entry-level truths for us. But as these disciples experience, so must we as his disciples experience. And that is that Jesus meets us on the grounds of those truths, but he never is content to leave us there. He always is moving us forward as his disciples. So here's a few application points for us to wear, for us to take on 
and see how our lives measure up and see as we go into the days ahead how we might be more like him. Consider your own life for a moment. Consider your journey with Jesus. It's possible that some of us have been Christians measured in decades, not individual years. It's possible that some of us are in here today and we've not really begun that process yet. And maybe that's part of what brought you here today. You know there's got to be more to life than what you're experiencing. Life is working you over more than the other way around, and you're looking for some answers. And I will tell you with no apologies and no uncertainties, Jesus is the relationship you must have in your life to find life the way God intended it to be. You cannot get to the life that God designed for us even all the way back in the Garden of Eden. You cannot get there because of sin. You need a Savior, and that's Jesus Christ. But you see, when we come to talk about that, even Scripture and us, we use terminology that we are born again. But that born again process is only the beginning We are called to be his disciples, to follow him. So let me just stop and ask you this searching question. How is Jesus transforming your life today? How is he working on you? Is he, well, maybe here's a good way to ask that question. The words that you use and the way that you talk, Is that pleasing to him? Can you imagine Jesus thinking the thoughts that you think? So often, we buy into a very shallow Christianity. We buy into it from the front end that says, I don't want to go to hell when I die. I want to go to heaven when I die. I want that for me. And so we buy into the entry level, but so often we don't take the next step or the next one or the next one in a lifelong process of following Jesus. We become like that son who says, okay, I'll go, but then we choose not to go. Jesus holds out for us that we should be the other son, And even on the front end of it, like those prostitutes and tax collectors, we may get it wrong on the front end, but at some point there's an awareness. At some point there's that repentance that takes place, and it puts us in the channel of growth with him, and he begins to rework us from the inside out. Another way to say all of that is to say that if we claim to be a Christian and fail to follow Jesus Christ, at best we're inconsistent. So how is it with you? Remember, true discipleship produces changed lives. Are you being changed for the glory of God? See, growth is what we're talking about here, personal spiritual growth. Now, this week, my granddaughter, one of my granddaughters, turned one year old. And um, so here's the deal. I've been reminded all week long because my daughter thinks that everybody wants to see pictures that she takes 
And so she's sending us all these pictures, and we like getting the pictures. I'm not complaining about it. But what, here's what I've been reminded of. A, a year ago when my granddaughter was born, I, I, I came back to this truth. I remembered it when I had my own kids. I remembered it with my other grandkids. But with this particular one, for some reason, it really settled in for me. You know when a baby is brand new, newly born, they're just not any fun at all. They just put, take up space. I mean, needy, and, you know, I, I get all the cute stuff and all that kind of thing, sort of, but, you know, most babies are not really cute. They're, they're, they don't, they're, they're not fun. They just take up space. But now my one-year-old granddaughter now, as I was looking at who she is now from those first days right after she was born, you know that to watch the development of a baby from the time they're newborns to the time they get to be one-year-old, there's an incredible amount of growth and development that occurs in that one year. Now, they're born selfish, so you don't have to teach them that. You don't have to teach a kid how to be selfish. They know when they're hungry, they're going to yell at you. And when they need to be changed, they're going to yell at you. That's why I'm saying they're not any fun at all. They're just needy. But now that my granddaughter is one year old, I watch her as she gives it to her almost four-year-old brother. I mean, it's amazing how powerful a one-year-old can be when she's taken on a four-year-old brother. I mean, she's learned a lot of things. She's got teeth in her mouth to bite with now. She didn't have that when she was one. She has the ability to communicate. Lauren, like she did with Declan, our grandson, Lauren has taught her some, some sign language. And so she does this. Now, I don't remember if that means I'm finished. No, this means I'm finished. This means I want more. So when she's sitting in her high chair, she just always wants more. And the more you give her, parents, I'm going to give you a hint here, parents. The more you feed them, the more they're going to grow which means they're going to learn other things, like how to bite their brothers and, you know, those kind of things. In one year's time, I've watched my granddaughter grow from being just a needy space taker to developing their own personality, to being able to move and maneuver and scoot around. Sooner or later, she'll be walking and talking. I wonder if we did a spiritual comparison of you today and you a year ago, would we find that development that we see in our grandchildren in one year's time? Too often, I'm afraid, we as Christians settle for a static growth chart in our spiritual lives. And so we just accept who we are. We have those attitudes about other people and those ways that we deal with other people that Jesus would never endorse, and yet because we've settled the first step, we think it's probably normal. But these disciples that Jesus dealt with grew. Matter of fact, I'm a little bit ahead in and what I wanted to say, but I'm going to go ahead and throw it in here. But if we go over to the book of Acts chapter 4, and I don't want us to take time to read it right now, I'll just quote it for you. But over in Acts chapter 4, 
those, the, the big three, the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John, uh, have gotten arrested by the same people who put Jesus to death. Acts chapter 4, these people who arrested them, the religious leaders are trying to figure out what to do with these three guys because, first of all, they're trying to put a, put a squash to the whole movement of Jesus and his disciples, but they can't deny some things. And there's this little verse, one of my favorite little pieces of a verse tucked away in Scripture in the book of Acts. It says this, or more or less this, that those religious leaders took note of those disciples that they had been with Jesus. What a great truth for us that somebody might look at us and say, you know what, I may not like everything about that person, but I cannot deny that they spend time with Jesus Christ. So many Christian people buy into a mentality that essentially says, I go to church and that makes me Christian. I go to church regularly, and that makes me like Jesus. But like the old guy said, spending time in church doesn't make you Christian or doesn't make you like Jesus any more than standing around in the garage makes you like a Corvette. How do we get there? How do we embrace this truth of this parable that says Jesus changes our lives? Discipleship produces change lives. How do we get there? Here's three quick suggestions for you. Here's the first one. First of all, we need to be with Jesus. These disciples spent three and a half years, let's just say three and a half years. That is, if my math is right, that's 42 months. In the overall scheme of things, that's no time in the overall scheme of things. But so intense was the change that Jesus brought in those guys in three and a half years that another place in Scripture says, and those who have turned the world upside down have now come to our city too. Three and a half years, time with Jesus. Jesus said to them on the front end of that, follow me and I will make you into something that you're not. So the first practical suggestion, it's the one that is brilliant as opposed to being dumb. The brilliant suggestion is that we follow Jesus, that we be with him. That means that we have to prioritize that in our lives. It means that we have to plan it sometimes. And it also means that we probably need a little bit of accountability from people around us that will help us Stay true to the process. Spend time with him. The second one is that we look like Jesus. Now, I don't mean look like as in look like. Like, for instance, I know that you look at me and you say, well, he looks just like Robert Redford. (laughs) Or Danny DeVito, one of those. (laughs) I don't mean that kind of look like, although it's good if people look at us and they say, he looks just like Jesus must have looked. No, I'm talking about the look. We need to look like Jesus looked. The first sermon that I ever preached here, almost two years ago now, not quite that, but moving closer to that, was taken out of Matthew's gospel. And it says there that Jesus saw the crowds. And then it tells us how he saw them. When he looked at them, what did he see? He saw that they were harassed, that they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We need to look 
the way Jesus looked at our surroundings. Here's why I think that's true. Because when we look and we see like Jesus saw things, it's going to break our hearts. People are messy. People are messed up. And we don't have the resources. I, I want to kind of piggyback on what our uh, task force was talking about a little bit in that uh, video shoot. And that is that as a church, as we look out there and we see what's in our community, just this community, and we could go beyond that, whether we went south five blocks or however far it is, or if we went to the other side of the planet, when we look out there, we see a need that is so much larger than we are, so much requires uh, resources that we don't have. What do we do with that? How do we know where we're supposed to plug in? And part of the answer is that, that we follow Jesus, that we walk with Jesus, that we spend time with him, but that we see that. Because as we see that, we will come to grips with just how inadequate we are to do what he's called us to do. And that pushes us right back into attaching ourselves to him. Because there is no need bigger than him. There's no need bigger than his ability to meet it. And so as we seek to be the bridges in this community, connecting people with the love and the life of Jesus Christ, we need to see and look the way that he did. I was in the fifth grade when my parents figured out that I needed glasses. We were driving home from San Angelo, Texas to Ballinger, Texas. It was after dark, and I was looking out across that farmland, and I noticed that every one of the lights at those farmhouses off the side of the road, every one of them had a dark hole right in the middle of it and then light around it. And I made the comment to my mom, why do those lights have those holes in them? She had me at the eye doctor within a couple of days after that. And they gave me glasses. Oh, they were good-looking glasses, too. We have pictures. Um, That was cruel. But you know what it did? It fixed my seeing problem, those glasses did. When I turned 30, I was just getting out of seminary, and the doctor said, you need bifocals. Bifocals? I'm 30 years old. You know what? He gave me bifocals. I could read again. It was an amazing thing. Here's what I want you to hear from that. We need vision correction sometimes. Because we settle into just that religious approach as opposed to listening and seeing the way God wants us to see. And so when you see, be moved by what you see. People are hurting. People need Jesus. People need us to grow. They need us to grow so that we can help them grow. Lastly, we need to follow him. First, I say we need to be with him. Secondly, we need to look like him. And finally, we need to follow him. You know, these disciples, this, this parable over in Luke's gospel as we come into this time frame is part of what's called the traveled narrative. Jesus is moving from across the countryside to Jerusalem where he's going to die. And he knows that. And along the way, He leads those disciples who are following him down into the depth of human need. Jesus always was stepping into places where he was needed. That's because he's needed everywhere. But as we follow him, 
He will take us into those kind of places. And it will cause us to grow. Again, we don't, you, as much as I respect you individually and us as a church, we have a, we have a, lot, of, we have a lot of resource here, human and intellectual and otherwise. We don't have what it takes to be what people need. Only Jesus has what it takes. And so as we follow him, he'll take us into those places and we'll connect with those people. But we don't connect with them from what we have. We connect with what Jesus is. We connect them with the love and the life that only he can give. And in the process of doing that, he changes us and he teaches us to trust him. He teaches us that he's trustworthy. He teaches us to deny ourselves. He teaches us to rethink how we think about people. He teaches us to stop being mean. He teaches us to be gracious. He teaches us mercy. He teaches us that we need him and we take him into those places. This parable is an incredible thing. And in that latter part of verse 31 and into verse 32, here's this thing. Jesus says, latter part of verse 31, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. That's the slant here. The slant that Jesus has here is that these religious leaders who think they have it going on, they would have thought that the prostitutes and the tax collectors didn't get into the kingdom of heaven at all. Certainly not before them. Jesus emphasizes the fact that when we are the son who says, maybe at the beginning we say, I'm not going to do that, but at some point we come to ourselves, we come to our senses, and our response is, I will do what the Father says. That's the person. That's the disciple that Jesus uses to turn the world upside down. And so if you're one of those living in that cardboard village, right underneath divine power and yet not tapping into it, the truth of this message is that the power of God is available to your life. It just takes a decision that says, I will follow what the master says. Let's pray. Let me ask you to bow your heads, if you will. Heads bowed, eyes closed. When we come to this point and the question becomes, what do you do with this message? Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you have that personal relationship with him where that power, the power that overcomes sin in your life, that power that overcomes the separation of sin that only Jesus can give to you? Do you know Jesus Christ in that life-changing way? If you don't, this invitation time is given over so that we can help people come to those kind of decisions. And if you don't know what that means, what that requires, then we invite you to just step out during this invitation time, come down here. Dr. Nickel and I will both be here. Others will be here. We'll talk with you, pray with you. We're not going to try to talk you into something. Not going to embarrass you. But we want to give you that opportunity to trust Jesus Christ and take that step into relationship with him. Many of us have taken that step long since. But if we look backwards over our life, not just the last year, but maybe a lot more than a year, there's no real discernible growth there. Are you more like Jesus today than you were a year ago, a month ago? Jesus is always ready to say, come walk with me. 
and I will turn you inside out for the glory of God. And so maybe that's a decision you need to make today, a rededication of sorts. You don't have to come talk to us about that. Maybe that's just something you can do right there in the pew. But what do you do with the message of the day? So, Father, we pray that you'd have your way with us now. Glorify your name. Change us for your glory is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing if you come.